This is They Create Worlds, episode 124, The Visions of Coleco, part 1. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. You heard about them in Legends. You heard about them over the course of over 120 episodes of this podcast. But now, they get to have the spotlight. The one, the only, Coleco. That's right. One of the most important companies involved in the leather business that was also involved in the video game business. But surprisingly, not the only important company that was involved in both. The leather business. Yes, indeed. That's where it all began. After all, Coleco is actually a contraction of the original name, the Connecticut Leather Company. Really? A leather company that goes around taking hides of various poor animals and turning it into various products for people to wear, use, and abuse. Then they decided, you know, I'm really tired (laughs) of tanning everything. We're going to tan people's egos by (laughs) having them suffer in video games. Sure. That was an analogy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Though, to be clear, they were never a tannery. They were a leather goods company. They weren't a tannery or a leather working company. Matter of fact, they weren't even a leather works company at first. So I suppose we can get right into it and just start talking about the legacy of this family company that was founded way back in the 1930s at the start of the Great Depression. The patriarch of Coleco was a gentleman by the name of Maurice Greenberg. Maurice was born in Russia, or at least was born in the Russian Empire. It's possible that they were in Ukraine or Belarusia or one of those places that was considered to be territorially part of Russia back then, but is no longer today. He was a Russian Jew, like many Russian Jews that in that period of time were the subject of persecution by the czars of Russia after all the word pogrom that indicates an aggressive action against Jews, persecution of Jews, is a Russian word. So that tells you what a great time they were having back in the old country in these days. Maurice Greenberg immigrated to the United States when he was just a boy. I don't know all the family details, all the history of the family. I don't think the parents ever came over. I think Maurice Greenberg's parents were sending their children over as they were able to. Some of his older siblings were already in Connecticut. So he was sent over when he was about 11 years old to New Haven, where his brothers were, and from a young age started working in his brother's moving company. He ended up, when he was a little older, when he was about 21, when he came of age, he moved to Hartford, another city in Connecticut. In 1932, he established the Connecticut Leather Company. The initial business that Maurice was in was actually something called the shoe findings business, which probably doesn't exist anymore. It was a very specific part of the shoemaking process. Back in very early times in in colonial in the colonial United States, a lot of those fancy trades 
that took a great deal of skill were traveling trades. So cobblers or shoemakers weren't necessarily found in every single last village. Instead, they would have uh, traveling businesses where they would go around to a bunch of different communities that may need their services. Because they were traveling around, they tried to travel as light as possible. They would actually work with locals to source some of the additional components they needed. Leather soles, for instance, leather shoelaces, shoe polish for the shoes as well. They would work with these locals, and so they were called shoe finders because they were finding the little components that the shoemakers needed. Kind of a weird little thing. It has nothing to do with video games or electronic games, but it's just one of these weird little professions that nobody's heard of anymore that just kind of interesting, I guess. Kind of lost to the mist of ancient times. Exactly. So even as cobblers became more established and shoemakers became more established and shoes even started being made in factories, the shoe-finding trade continued to exist in the early 20th century. That's the business that he was involved in. He was kind of a middleman. He would find leather suppliers and work with leather suppliers, get materials from them. He wasn't doing his own manufacturing. Then he would connect with shoemakers in order to give them all of these parts they needed to make their shoes. So that's how the business started. And as we mentioned at the the top here, the eventual name of the company, Coleco, is C-O, Connecticut, L-E, Leather, C-O company. That's kind of where the name comes from. That was the business. Kind of a hard time to be starting a new company during the the Great Depression, obviously, but uh, the company did okay. World War II then, of course, came along and was a great problem for anyone involved in any kind of business like this, because, of course, every single raw material that the U.S. government could get its hands on was needed for the war effort. If you were working in leather, all the leather was going to the military and and not necessarily to whomever you had been working with before. So the shoe finders had to often find other things to do instead to keep the business going forward. By this time, uh, Maurice has two sons, the elder son, Leonard, and the younger son, Arnold. By this time, Leonard is 16 years old. Leonard is a very accomplished technical person. He has an interest in mathematics and engineering. He also has a a real interest in manufacturing. He's just very interested in the manufacturing process. He convinces his father during the war, because they're looking for other ways to kind of try to make ends meet, to let him open a small shop on the premises of the company just to sell small handcrafted leather items, the kind of stuff that I don't know exactly what they were selling, but the kind of stuff that you can make with leather scraps with what little material they were able to get together in this period when all the leather was being rationed for World War II. So sort of like uh, little wallets, knickknacks, or labels and things like that. Yeah, that would be my guess. I don't know the details, but exactly. I would think that kind of thing. They did some of that during World War II, and then Leonard went off to college at uh, Trinity College, which was a local college graduated in 1948 with a mathematics degree, then went to work for United Aircraft. Not United Airlines, not the airline company, but there was an airplane manufacturer in Hartford called United Aircraft. He went to work for them uh, as an engineer when he graduated in 1948. He missed his father's business. I mean, obviously, he grew up you know, in his father's business, grew up around that, and really enjoyed the leather business. Even though he went off and got his fancy degree and went off to work for his fancy airplane company, 
he discovered he didn't really like the work. He didn't like the job. He wanted to get back to kind of the more hands-on entrepreneurial stuff that he was doing with his father. So in 1949, he quit his job and came back into the Connecticut Leather Company. But as I said, you know, he wasn't really interested in the shoe findings stuff. That wasn't his deal. He liked manufacturing. Once the company got bigger, this is skipping ahead. But Leonard, unfortunately, I never had a chance to talk to. By the time I was in touch with the Greenbergs, he had had a stroke and wasn't really uh, capable of giving an interview anymore. He has since passed away. I mean, he lived to 89, I believe. So, you know, he lived a full life, but I never had a chance to talk to Leonard, but I did talk to his brother, who will enter our story a little later in the episode, Arnold. Arnold said that there was nothing that Leonard loved more than walking the factory floor. Once they got bigger, I mean, in this stage of the company we're talking about, they didn't have factories yet. But as the company grew and they got more and more into manufacturing, that is what gave Leonard joy more than anything else. He loved the process of building things. It was more he enjoyed actually the creation and managing the creation of the product as opposed to, say, administration and the minutia of establishing capital, mm-hmm. establishing business relations and all that other fun stuff that you need for a business. He's more focused on how do I most efficiently produce this thing? Let's just see this well-oiled machine do the thing. That's exactly right. What are the new materials coming? What are the new trends coming? Where can we build next? That is definitely what Leonard brought to things. Leonard ends up getting another one of his friends, a college friend named Melvin Gershman, a fellow engineer, to join the company with him. And in 1950, Leonard and Melvin worked together to create a leather cutting machine on the premises. Because remember, at this point, despite the fact that they did some handcrafted stuff during the war, to help make ends meet, they are still primarily a shoe findings business. They are acquiring raw materials and moving those raw materials onto other people. They're a middleman. They're not making their own stuff, but that's what Leonard wants to do. His father is very supportive and and lets him do this. So he and Melvin put together a leather cutting machine so that they can start creating their own leather products. The very first product they do is just leather lacing, just spools of leather lacing because you know they were a shoe finding business so they had been sourcing leather lacing for shoes from other people now they're cutting out the middleman so to speak and they're going to start manufacturing so leather lacing for those who might not know think of it as shoelaces except Mm -hmm. they're made out of leather because modern day shoelaces are completely different material than how they used to do things back then where they actually had the really thin pieces of leather and that's how you did your shoelaces as opposed to what you have now which is usually a nylon or other fabric-based thing. Yeah, exactly, because there were such advances made in synthetic fabrics, it was much cheaper to do synthetic fabrics. But way back in the day, leather was prized for things like laces because it was very supple. It was both durable, but also very supple and and manipulatable. And so, uh, you know, it was great for lacing. That was their introduction to manufacturing. From there, they ended up having an opportunity There was a glove manufacturer up in Mayfield, New York. Mayfield, New York, of all places, was uh, apparently the glove manufacturing capital of the United States at the time. (laughs) Who knew? Really? Yeah, it's just one of these places that really, they, they made gloves, so good for them. 
Uh, but there was a, <laughs> there was there was a glove factory up there that went belly up. Mm-hmm. So they had an opportunity at that point to expand. And so in the early 1950s, I don't know the exact year, they actually moved in and bought this factory in Mayfield, New York. The company remained headquartered in Hartford in Connecticut. They acquired this glove factory in Mayfield so that they could really get into true mass production. They weren't making gloves. They weren't getting into the glove business, but it gave them a space where they could be a true heavy-duty manufacturer and completely leave this middleman business behind. They started doing leather kits at this point. There was a period of time here where leather crafts became very popular. I think it was kind of a short-lived thing. I don't know the full history of it because I'm a video game historian, not a leather crafts historian. Right. So you only just need to know a little bit of the company before (laughs) it gets to this point. Right. But because we love being thorough on our topics, you're going to hear a lot about it. We are going to get to video games in this episode, but it's it's actually the majority of this episode will be a non-video games episode, just kind of laying the groundwork of this great organization. So leather kits became very popular where you would get these pre-cut pieces of something and it would be your job to sew them together. It's like building uh, plastic models, except you're building leather products like, you know, sew your own wallet or sew your own moccasins or this kind of stuff. Something you could easily make at home <laughs> with simple stitch work, especially since a lot of people during this time period, especially after, with the Great Depression, know a lot of home craft skills like sewing. Yes, exactly, exactly. So they got into leather kits and they started with leather moccasins being one of their first very popular kits. There was kind of a move of leather crafting as part of the toy business as well. I think this is because this is kind of the golden age of the television western. I mean, it's near the beginning of television period. There's a lot of cowboy and Indian shows. Indians are wearing leather moccasins and cowboys are wearing leather boots and leather chaps and coonskin caps. There's kind of this synergy with the popularity of the Westerns on television and the popularity of leather craft kits. They do this moccasin kit that's marketed as a hobby, a hobbyist thing, which falls under the toy industry. They take it to Toy Fair in 1954. It's a big hit. I think, uh, you know, it's just the, the right time, the right place with television Westerns and all of that. They have a big hit with it. So they decide, well, let's, let's get into the hobby and toy business. Let's kind of make that our focus of our leather crafts. So they start acquiring licenses as the decade goes on. They do a Howdy Doody license. Uh, Howdy Doody was an incredibly popular children's show. Incredibly popular. We still refer to the peanut gallery this day. The, The term peanut gallery is actually something that comes from the show Howdy Doody. Really? I didn't know that's where the show came from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, there, there was a peanut gallery in the show. I, mean, I don't think there were literal, literal peanuts in the peanut gallery, but that idea of comes from that. So Howdy Doody was hugely popular. Every, every child in America practically was watching that. What would be a modern equivalent of that? It was one of these shows that, like many shows at the time, that was focused around puppetry and that kind of performance art. So... In a way, it it has that Sesame Street element to it, though, you know, it wasn't really, I don't think, an educational show in the same way that Sesame Street was an educational show. It was meant first and foremost to be entertainment. Howdy Doody was a marionette, kind of the main character, and there were other marionettes as well. 
Obviously, I wasn't a child back then, so <laughs> I don't know it very well. But I mean, that was certainly a show that was on when my parents were kids. Certainly a show that they watched. And I'm sure there's examples of this show out on YouTube, and I will certainly try to hunt a few of those down and throw them in the show notes. Absolutely. And it, and it had a Western bent to it. The puppeteer himself you know, went by the name Buffalo Bob Smith, and he wore kind of Western outfits. And Howdy Doody, the dummy, the marionette, wore Western outfits. There were other characters as well. That fit in naturally with the leather crafting motif. So they did a Howdy Doody license. They got in with Disney. They did Mickey Mouse leather crafts. Uh, of course, Disney also had a very popular Davy Crockett show that starred Fess Parker in the 50s. And so they got into Davy Crockett stuff. It was just a, a perfect fit. And they uh, became a player in the toy industry in the 50s. Leonard Greenberg, who was always, uh, you know, he's an engineer, remember? Mm-hmm. So he was always kind of inspired by new design methods, new materials. He pivoted the company into plastics in 1956 because this is when plastic toys were just starting to get big in post-World War II. So they had some plastic toys that did well. I think they did a space helmet that did particularly well because, of course, the NASA craze is getting ready to start. Just kind of tying in with the stuff that's popular with kids at the time. Then the plastics got them into wading pools, into making plastic wading pools. That's where the business really got going. So now by the end of the 1950s, they are completely enmeshed in this toy business. Most of this toy business now is not even leather anymore. It's plastics. The name of the company really doesn't fit anymore. And the leather part of the company really doesn't fit anymore. In 1961, they sell off the leather crafting business. They sell off all the leather side of the business. They renamed the company Coleco Industries. Of course, the Coleco comes from Connecticut Leather Company and Industries because they're involved in manufacturing stuff. It's still not a name that necessarily screams toys, though I don't think really any of the toy companies at this time, I mean, Hasbro and Mattel aren't names that automatically scream toys either. But that's what they are now. They're a toy company and they're primarily an outdoor toy company. They're primarily in these plastic pools. Now that the focus of the business has changed as well, Maurice Greenberg, the father, he steps down as CEO of the company. He stays chairman of the board, but, you know, he was in the shoe finding business and he went from shoe finding to leather crafts. The whole toy thing and the whole greater, bigger manufacturing thing is really his son Leonard's thing. Maurice is 100% supportive of all of this. As I said, I've talked to Arnold Greenberg and I asked him, what did your father think about how the business was changing? And, you know, he thought it was great and he was very supportive of what his son was doing. But clearly this isn't uh, his business anymore, so to speak. So he stays on as chairman and Leonard in 1961 takes on the role of president and CEO. They also get listed on the American Stock Exchange which is not as prestigious as the uh, the Dow Jones, but they go public as well. They're ready to enter the 1960s as this toy company. Because they've gone public and because Leonard is very interested in growing the company, the next decade or so is one of constant expansion. They look for companies that are kind of synergistic with what they're already doing in terms of outdoor recreation and in terms of toys, and they try to build on that. 
1963, they buy a company called Kestrel Corporation, which is in inflatable backyard pools. So kind of these temporary little wading pool kind of things as opposed to the plastic pools that are also temporary in the sense that you only put them up in the summer, but are something that's bigger and more substantial. They're basically trying to take over the entire backyard pool kind of business, temporary children's-oriented pool kind of business. We're not talking about doing dug-in pools or doing big wooden swimming pools or anything like that. Then in 1965, they purchase a doll carriage company called Playtime Products. They don't make dolls themselves, but they make doll carriages for kids to put their dolls in and wheel around. Then uh, in 1968, they actually expand into Canada. There's a tabletop football and hockey game company up in Canada called Eagle Toys that's kind of hit on hard times. So they end up buying Eagle as well. I don't know if you remember uh, these kind of tabletop sports games. Are they like foosball or something like that or something a little bit different? No, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about tabletop representations of games that are slightly less abstract. I know I had one that I like to play. It might have even been from Eagle Toys. I have no idea. It was my uncle's before mine, so it's from the 60s. But, you know, it was a hockey game where you have these individual levers for all of the individual players, similar to foosball levers, but it's not foosball-style players. It's actually these little metal flats that you stick on these metal rods sticking out of the play field, and so you can twist it, and the, the player spins around, and you can move it back and forth, and they move up and down. Less abstract than foosball, more individualized than foosball. You know, there were the vibrating football games. I don't know if you ever played one of those. Uh, American football. I never played one of them, but I think I might have seen allusion to them in a lot of uh, cartoon shows. I think they might have even been on The Simpsons at one point. Yeah, probably. My uncle had had one of those, too, that I played. Basically, those kind of games are you had these little players that you would set up in formations on the football field. You would plug it in. It was electrically powered. It would have this vibrator. So the entire field, the entire play field would vibrate. The players would move around semi-randomly. The players themselves weren't powered. They were just little figurines. But the vibrations would move those players around. So the idea was one of the players had the ball. Then you would turn this thing on and the field would vibrate. And the player was considered to be running with the ball until an opposing player's piece touched him. And then that's where the action stopped as if he had been tackled and, you know, you, you would track the, the downs and the yardage and stuff. Not in any way scientific, but that's another kind of tabletop sports game that existed with the football emphasis. So they were getting involved in these tabletop sports games. There would also be basketball games. My mom had one of these. I played all of these old kind of games from like the 60s and 70s because my mom or, or my uncle had had them. And so I played them when I was a young kid. There would be basketball games where you would basically have a ping pong ball and you'd drop it on the surface of a basketball court that would have different slopes in it and different holes in it. And the ping pong ball would move around until it was in one of these holes. Then there would be these spring-loaded levers that you would then press down to uh, launch the ping pong ball if it landed in one of your holes as opposed to your opponent's hole. And then that would launch the ball and you would try to regulate your amount of force so that it would go in the net and and count as a basket and then it would roll around again. And So, you know, there were all of these kind of tabletop sports games that were popular. I don't know that Coleco was involved in all of those, but they were definitely at least involved in those hockey and football-style games. 
Eagle Toys did okay for them. They definitely became very involved in the sports thing. Playtime products didn't end up panning out. They ended up closing that factory after a few years and getting out of that business. The swimming pool business, though, is where they really, really got big with the combination of the plastic pools they were already doing and then the inflatable pools that they inherited from Kestrel. They really became the number one outdoor children's pool company in the world, and that was kind of their real big thing. For 12 straight years, they had year-over-year record growth where their earnings were greater than the year before, all the way through 1972. But a lot of that was in swimming pools. It was in outdoor stuff specifically. That was fine. This was a period of time when there was growth, as we talked about in some of our broad history video game episodes, in recreation and leisure and the idea that you had rec rooms with ping pong tables and sporting equipment and you had swing sets outside in your yard or pools outside in your yard. This was a period of time when it was becoming more and more lucrative to be in that business. But it was a very unbalanced business. If pools ever started to decline in popularity, there was a great risk that Coleco would be greatly impacted because by 1968, that was 75% of their sales, despite all of these other areas they had gone into. They were basically, at this point, a pool company that also happened to sell some toys on the side. At this point, we have to introduce the other Greenberg in this story, and the Greenberg that I had the privilege to interview and that's Leonard's younger brother, Arnold. We talked about how Leonard was the engineer. He was the manufacturing guy. He loved walking the factory floor. He loved building things. Arnold was really a completely different type of guy. Arnold was more a business guy and a legal guy, and he actually went to law school. He graduated Harvard Law in 1958. Even though he didn't come and work directly for the company, like Leonard did after he graduated, he did go to work for the law firm in Hartford that had Coleco as a client. This law firm had been Coleco's law firm ever since it was founded as the Connecticut Leather Company all the way back in 1932. So even though he wasn't in the family business, he was heavily, heavily involved in the family business. In fact, as the decade wore on and Coleco expanded more and more and kept doing all of these acquisitions, Coleco basically started taking up all of his time. His sole client wasn't Coleco at the law firm. As it got bigger, that was just all that he was doing. It just kind of made sense for him to come inside at that point. It's the family business. It's his father's business. It's his brother's business. They clearly have enough legal work to keep him occupied because it's all he's doing at this point. In 1966, he joins Coleco himself. Officially, he's chief legal counsel. You know, it's a family business. He really gets involved in everything, in every aspect. He discovers that he's actually got a knack for marketing. He has a knack for reading the market, understanding the market, and uh, selling things to people in the market. This is something he really had no idea about before, but just by being involved in the business, he discovered it. By 1970, he takes on the role of executive vice president. Leonard is still CEO and president of the company. Their father is still chairman of the board. Arnold is now executive vice president, and basically there's a division of responsibility between Leonard and Arnold, kind of unofficially, 
where Leonard is taking care of the R&D and manufacturing and operations and all of that stuff that he really loves, where Arnold is focusing more on the sales and the marketing and the legal stuff and everything that fits into his bailiwick. And so they really make a kind of good team because they're both very intelligent guys who are intelligent in different ways and in different facets of business. That played some good role in their success in this period. I've heard, you know, you hear this from different sources. I've interviewed a couple of people at Coleco. Other people have interviewed people at Coleco as well. I do hear it was very much a family company, especially after everyone was involved here, as you're getting more into the late 1960s and into the 1970s. You know, Leonard and Arnold, they liked each other. They got along, but as anybody does, there would sometimes be disagreement in the business or subordinates would have disagreement in the business. One employee once described it once, and I'm just using his words, described it as being run like a Jewish deli. The Greenbergs are Jewish, which is where that comes from. But he said it was kind of run like a Jewish deli. There would be lots of people screaming, and whoever screamed loudest is the one that got their way. That sounds like a dysfunctional operation. (laughs) It does when you put it like that. Now, I've asked many people about this quote. I've asked Arnold Greenberg about the quote. I've asked Mike Katz about the quote, Bert Reiner, who is head of product development. I've asked a lot of people about that quote, and nobody else seems to want to go on the record saying that. The specific employee of the company who is in charge of marketing services named Jim Gordon, who I have not interviewed, but was interviewed for another book called High Score, who made that comment. No one else seems willing to go on the record to quite say the same thing. So I don't think it was probably quite as dysfunctional as that makes it sound like. But I do think it was a company that focused on having very strong personalities, very opinionated people, and having everybody kind of say their piece and kind of hash out where the company is going to go next rather than some autocrat from on high dictating to everybody what's going to happen, if that makes sense. That does. Arnold joins the company in 66, becomes EVP in 1970. In the last part of the 1960s, they kick this expansion thing into overdrive. You know, they've been buying up companies throughout the 60s, as we already discussed. But between 1968 and 1973, they buy about 20 more companies to integrate into Coleco. 20 in five years. Are these big companies, small companies, medium companies? These are largely small companies. We're really talking small companies here. They're not conglomerating. Uh, You know, we've talked a lot about some of these other companies in this period, like Gulf and Western that owned Sega or Warner Communications that owned Atari, that really did gobble up lots of companies in lots of different industries, some of them very large companies, in order to form a conglomerate. That's not what Coleco is doing. Coleco is trying to expand strictly within the toy industry and adjacent recreation industries. They're really targeting small specialist companies that make specific products that they think will fill out their line and will make them less dependent on that swimming pool business. Unfortunately, even if you're buying just small companies, Buying 20 companies in five years is a lot. It ends up being too much. Of course, they finance a lot of this through short-term debt. They're taking on a lot of debt in order to do this with the idea that once they integrate these companies and these companies' products are added to their line, they'll be able to pay the debts off. 
they find that they're stretched too thin. The Greenbergs and uh, their close confidant, Melvin Gershom, can't really integrate these companies very well. The debt is mounting. Some of these purchases are just not panning out. This becomes a problem, and it all comes to a head in 1973. So I talked about how for about a decade, all the way up through 1972, they had record growth every year for 12 straight years. 1960 to 1972, they had record growth every year, year over year. Well, in 1973, a couple of things happened. They're already over-leveraged. They're already having trouble integrating all these companies. Then they bought a snowmobile company. Because like I said, they're getting into adjacent recreation areas as well. It's not strictly toys. It turns out that the winter that year is really exceptionally mild. Nobody buys snowmobiles in the winter of 72-73. They had also bought a dirt bike company. The dirt bike company just didn't work out at all. The dirt bikes weren't selling. So on top of everything else, the snowmobiles and the dirt bikes not doing well plunged them to a $1.1 million loss for the 1973 fiscal year, the first time that they had ever posted a loss in the history of the company. So naturally, the stock market reacts to that and goes, "Uh uh-oh, we're getting out of here. Yeah. So, I mean, it it wasn't uh, disastrous for the company. It wasn't something that permanently destroyed the company or anything, but it did mean that they really needed to pull back. They really needed to take stock of what was really working for them and what really wasn't. Kind of slow down for a few years and figure things out. It also meant that they went through another period of executive shuffles. So at this point, Maurice Greenberg retired He was chairman of the board. He wasn't really all of that active anymore anyway, but at this point, it's just getting older. So this seems like the perfect time to retire. Wall Street likes to see changes when there's a problem, and so that's an easy change to make because I think he was ready to retire anyway. Retire a few years early, and we'll call it good. Right. Leonard Greenberg becomes the chairman of the company and uh, remains CEO as well. Then Arnold becomes president of the company at this point. So he takes on an even larger role in the day-to-day running of the company, though he was already taking on a pretty large role. I don't think it functionally changed what he was doing at the company very much. It's still the bigger job title. Melvin Gershman then becomes an executive vice president. He's, you'll recall, the friend that helped Leonard start up the leather manufacturing business back when they were doing the transition into toys. He's still there as well. So they kind of do this executive reshuffle. They kind of lay low for a little bit. They had just listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 1971. They're playing in a, in a bigger arena, and they just need to slow down a little bit. All of that that we've just gone through is background for the whole reason that we're actually talking about Coleco, which is, of course, that they were, for a brief period of time in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, very extremely important in the video game industry. Their move into the video game industry comes about exactly because of all of these market forces that we were just talking about leading up to this. They're still very desperate to get beyond swimming pools. During this whole period where other stuff like snowmobiles and dirt bikes and whatever else wasn't working for them, swimming pools were still very much working for them. Tabletop sports games were also working for them, some as well. But really, it's this swimming pool thing still. 
in addition to the fact that they're worried about being too devoted to one product category, is also the fact that this is a business that is highly, highly seasonal. You buy swimming pools in the spring and in the summer. You don't buy swimming pools in the fall or in the winter, because in most parts of the United States, there are a few exceptions, it is no longer fun to be in your swimming pool deep into the fall, particularly in the winter. Unless you're a crazy person and like swimming in the snow and the ice like some of my uncles (laughs) did in the middle of a New Year's party. To be fair, (laughs) they may have been intoxicated at the time. May have been. Listen to this guy. (laughs) No, but uh, absolutely. So, of course, the swimming pool business is largely spring and summer business. And so part of all of their acquisition work, part of all of their looking for new product category things has always been very much about the fact they want a holiday product as well to counterbalance all of the spring-summer stuff. By about 1975, give or take, after they've recovered from this little hiccup that they experienced in 73 with the loss, and they're looking out at the world and trying to get a good idea of what would be a good product category for them to get into that isn't already super crowded or owned by somebody else, Arnold Greenberg, in particular, alights on this idea of the video game industry. Just as a reminder, of course, we talk about this in several episodes, so uh, we'll make this kind of brief. By 1975, you had Magnavox with their Odyssey had been in the home already since 1972, so they've had three-plus years of sales. Not brilliant sales, but not so bad that they just want to up and leave the market either. Kind of slow, steady, reliable, but tiny sales in this video game industry, and sales that have grown every year, in all fairness. Every year, Magnavox has sold more systems than the year before. It's just, it's never been a breakout. No pun intended. You had, of course, the Pong craze that's already risen and fallen in the arcade, and you have this idea of coin-operated video games as being a thing that exists. You have large-scale integrated circuits and medium-scale integration circuits, quite frankly, both medium-scale and large-scale integrated circuits, which just refers to the number of transistors you have on the chip. More and more transistors on a single sliver of silicon means more and more power for lower and lower price. This is Moore's Law at work. So you have medium-scale and large-scale integrated circuits coming in that are more powerful for less money, you're starting to get to the point where you can put a video game like Pong on two or three medium-scale integration chips, or perhaps even on just one of these new fancy large-scale integration chips that are just starting to hit the market. This is going to bring down the price of the games, and this is going to bring down the manufacturing complexity of the games. You know, in the early days here, it's not a coincidence that a company like Magnavox was the one that started the video game craze. They didn't invent, obviously, the the system. Ralph Barrett Sanders Associates did. But as the manufacturer of the technology, it's not a surprise that it would be a television company because a television company is already dealing with sophisticated electronics in its core business, and they're already used to selling very expensive items to consumers. And just as a reminder, Magnavox, when they're selling their televisions and stuff out there, they're selling effectively fancy furniture with electronics in it. 
Absolutely. You're talking about a giant piece of handcrafted, solid wood furniture that plays your records, plays your tapes, is your radio. And then we have this newfangled television, so we're going to give some space in there for a television. This is going to take up a lot of space. It's going to be very expensive. It is a fixture of the home. Exactly. It's only logical that a company already dealing with expensive items is going to be uh, the one that gets into video games. Toy companies were staying away from the whole video game thing. I know we've talked about this in other episodes, but just as a reminder for the context of Coleco, the reason for that is a toy was something relatively cheap that you mostly got for your kids around Christmas time, and maybe you got them a little something for their birthday too. It was a very seasonal industry. It was centered around relatively cheap items. Now, I say relatively cheap for the time. Of course, inflation means that some of these items would be much more expensive today. Really, $30 was about where a toy topped out in the 1970s. You know, that's more expensive than it sounds because with inflation, that's probably getting up close to like an $100 toy or more today. That's the upper end. It's not that every toy was $30. That was the upper end. Toy stores did not sell anything more expensive than that, except perhaps for maybe some bikes. Toy store like Toys R Us, a bigger toy store might have a bike section, and the bikes would be more expensive. But other than that, you know, you're talking about dolls, action figures, play sets. You're talking about stuff that's $30 or less. Anything more expensive than that, and you're talking about going to a department store or to a specialty retailer of some other expensive product like an electronics or sporting goods. Not a children's toy. Exactly, not a children's toy. There was an understanding that video games were, in a sense, toys. Now, remember, as we've talked about before, this was a quote-unquote toy that was marketed to the whole family, that it was expected that the whole family would play, especially when it came to the really early stuff like Pong, because, of course, Pong was played by adults in bars. It wasn't really strictly a toy, but it was understood that it's something recreational, it's something the family's going to play, it's something the family may have in their rec room. That's why Sears initially sold it to their sporting goods department, because it was seen as an adjunct to a pool table or a ping pong table that you might buy for your rec room. Arnold Greenberg saw that this was something that made sense for a toy company to do, and he also saw that it was something that the toy companies, the other toy companies, because Coleco was a toy company too, had avoided. Also, it was a logical extension because even though the pools were their big thing, they were in these tabletop sports games. There's a way that you could certainly understand a home video game system that played Pong or played a table tennis game to be another form of tabletop sports game, just one that you happen to hook into your TV. He thought that it might be possible that video games were becoming more and more interesting and toy buyers would want to get in on this and that they might be willing to go above $30. Now, he wasn't thinking about something super huge and fancy. You know, the Magnavox Odyssey retailed for 100 bucks. You know, he thought that was too rich for toy buyers. But he thought, maybe if we can make something that sells for around $50, that might not be so far away from what toy buyers are used to that they might be willing to take a chance on that 
just because it's sophisticated technology and they could figure they could market more sophisticated technology for a higher price and because people had seen what it had done in the arcade. So they knew that there was a interest and a market for this kind of thing. They decide that they're going to try to enter the video game business. Try to enter it. Yes, try to enter it because they don't know if they can actually do this or not. They don't have any electronics staff. They don't have anyone that's worked with this stuff. They kind of, I think, have an inkling that prices are falling on electronics, but they don't necessarily know that they can do something for the low, low price of 50-ish dollars. Their VP of product development, head of product development, Bert Reiner, goes out and tries to find a contractor that they can use to create a video game for them because they can't do this in-house. It just so happens that there is a company in Connecticut, in Stamford, Connecticut, not too far away from Coleco and Hartford, because, of course, nothing in Connecticut's that far away from each other. It's a small state that is involved in computer stuff called the Alpex Computer Corporation. Oh, we may have talked about them. Yes, we have talked about them. So most people are aware that Alpex was behind the technology for the first programmable video game system, the Fairchild Channel F. What most people are not aware of is that they also created Coleco's first video game system, the Telstar. You know, it's it's for the same reason. They had been working on electronic cash register designs at Alpex. Then National Cash Register, NCR, and IBM got involved in computerized cash registers. There was no place for Alpex anymore. So Alpex hit a bad patch because they had a product nobody wanted anymore. They needed to find a new product category, and so they were drawn towards video games, and that's why they started in 1974 to work on this video game console. Coleco comes in, and Coleco's not interested in this big, fancy video game technology with the uh, interchangeable ROMs and all of that, because remember, their focus really is on keeping the price down. Since Alpex is involved with this whole video game thing, they're the perfect company to go to to make them a simpler video game technology. And wouldn't you know, as an added bonus, they're already in Connecticut, so they're close by to keep an eye on things. So Alpex creates the basic technology for this Pong system, which is going to be bringing Pong to the home. Atari's bringing Pong into the home. Magnavox is creating a slimmed-down version of its Odyssey that just plays Pong and hockey games. So Coleco's going to follow the same track. Alpex can do a lot of the work, but Alpex is not a chip company. They still need an LSI, a large-scale integrated circuit, in order to actually uh, form the heart of this system. As luck would have it, there is also a chip company real nearby in New York, New York State, called General Instrument. We heard of them before, too. Yes, we've already talked about the General Instrument story, so we won't go into it in detail here, because, of course, what General Instrument does is they end up creating the Pong-on-a-chip chip, the AY3 8500. We've talked about this chip before, but basically it's a low-cost, large-scaling duration circuit that can play four-ball and paddle games, pong, hockey, handball, which is basically both players bouncing the ball off a wall, kind of like racquetball, and a one-player practice mode, as well as two target shooting games, two shoot-the-dot style games. The chip is available really cheaply, yeah, so it can form the heart for a cheaper system, which is what Coleco needs because they're a toy company and they want to entice toy buyers with something that's not terribly too expensive. There's been a couple of different stories about how the GI connection came about. 
Ralph Baer in his autobiography says that he was responsible for connecting Coleco with General Instrument. By this point, Ralph Baer has become a toy company consultant. He's still doing his day job at Sanders Associates, the defense contractor. But because the licensing revenue from his video game technology has been so good for the company, they've agreed to allow him to moonlight as an independent contractor doing electronic toys. He's working primarily with a company called Marvin Glass Associates in Chicago. This is kind of a meshing him more and more into the toy industry, so he's meeting people in the toy industry, and he comes to know Arnold Greenberg. Of course, uh, Nashua, New Hampshire is not that far away from Connecticut either. All that New England stuff is fairly close together. You know, they've met each other, they've talked to each other, and Bear says he's the one that alerted them to the general instrument chip. Because, of course, GEI secured a license for the patents because they didn't want to have any legal trouble with Sanders or with Magnavox over there hung on a chip. So because they got a license, Bear was aware of the GI chip relatively early. So he says that he was at Coleco one day and was like, hey, you know, there's this great chip. You should check it out. Maybe get into video games. It seems that that story is probably, I don't want to say the story is false because I'm sure Ralph Bear's not lying. He was a pretty straight shooter. I'm sure that he really did have that conversation with Arnold Greenberg. I have no reason at all to doubt that. However, I interviewed Bert Reiner, the VP of product development at Coleco, the guy that was actually responsible for putting together this whole video game thing. He didn't design it because he's not an engineer, an electrical engineer, but he's the guy who's in charge of making all the contacts and getting all the pieces together to make it work. He says that it's actually they approached General Instrument because they were starting to approach chip companies. They already knew they were making a video game. They already had Alpex on board. So now they were looking for a chip company. General Instrument was their first stop because it was the one chip company of any note that was right by them in New York instead of in Silicon Valley. So he sets up a meeting with General Instrument, and he's telling their guys, like, yeah, so we're making this video game system. We were hoping you guys could make a chip for us. And then the GI guys were like, funny you should mention a video game chip, because we're making one of those. Maybe you would like to buy one. (laughs) Exactly. And it's kind of funny. Alpex, actually, the Alpex people said, you do not want to work with General Instrument. Don't do this. General Instrument kind of had a reputation at that time. Their primary business was providing chips for companies to integrate into consumer electronics specifically. You know, they would do exactly what Coleco is about to do with them now. And they'd go to a company and the company would say, well, you know, we want this functionality in our radios. Could you maybe make us a little chip that goes on the radio that provides this functionality or in our television or whatever else? They'd make it. So they were kind of a contractor and they didn't have the best reputation as being cutting edge fabrication company with great quality control. You know, they weren't Fairchild. They weren't National Semiconductor. They weren't even Intel, which at this point was still a fairly new company, but was in the process of establishing itself. You know, it was kind of seen as an also-ran compared to those big companies. So Alpex was like, I don't know that you really want to do this. Uh, As Bert Reiner tells it, they had the chip. The chip was within their cost range, and they really liked the idea of being able to work somebody with somebody right next door to them rather than on the other coast. So they went with General Instrument, and they placed a large order for just under a million chips from General Instrument for the uh, AY38500. They use it as the heart of what they call the Telstar, the Coleco Telstar, which to all appearances was named for the communication satellite. One of the very first communication satellites launched just a few years before that was the Telstar. You know, it was very famous. There was a lot of press around it. 
as far as Arnold Greenberg remembers, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure he's 100% on it, but as far as he remembers, that's why they chose that name, because Telstar was in the news. It was just convenient for product recognition. They weren't quite able to get it down to something that retailed for 50 but because it had the cheap chip in it and because they cut back and didn't include all the games that the chip could play, which cut down on the amount of circuitry, they were able to create a system that retailed for about $70. You know, that was pretty good. I mean, the Magnavox Odyssey was $100. When Atari was going to be coming in with their home Pong, it was going to be closer to $100 as well. $70 undercut the competition. Put it within the range where toy buyers were at least uh, somewhat okay. So the original Telstar, the one that was launched in 1976, played just the tennis and hockey variants that were available on the chip, as well as the one-player practice mode. It didn't have the handball game or the squash game, and it didn't have the shooting games. That allowed them to include a little less circuitry. It meant they didn't have to have separate controls for the shooting, all of that. Retailed for 70 bucks, and they planned to introduce it in June. They figured, even though this thing is probably going to mostly be a holiday item, they figured if they released it in June, they could at least maybe get some Father's Day kind of sales out of it. That gives them a lot of time to start advertising it and start building inventory before they really need it in the Christmas season. Well, there's just one little problem, and that one little problem is a big problem called the FCC. But I thought Nintendo slayed the FCC and made video games live happily ever. Oh, wait. (laughs) At this point, with these video game contraptions you plug into your television still being very new, the FCC was coming out with new regulations on interference. They were all new and nobody really knew how to deal with them. And they were very strict in these days. They got relaxed a little bit later, but they were very strict in these days. Basically, a video game system, we talked about this before, but a video game system like the Telstar... It is broadcasting a signal. Now, it's not broadcasting a signal in the same way that your television station is. It's not broadcasting a highly amplified signal that it's bouncing off the atmosphere to try to reach millions of people in their homes. It's just broadcasting a very highly focused signal through wires that it is sending directly into the inputs in your television so that your television and your television alone is picking up that signal. It's a strong signal so that it overrides the signal that's coming in over the air. So if you have a system that broadcasts to channel 3 that you have to set to channel 3 like most video game systems were, what it was doing is just sending a high-powered channel 3 signal right to your television that's stronger than the signal that uh, is coming over the air and and overrides it. I probably described that completely wrong because I'm not technical, but we'll go with that. That's effectively what it is. What's happening is what's called an RF override or RF modulator that's in there. A lot of the old console systems, and you had this little special box that you would put in in order to allow the antenna to come in, go to the TV, and then it would also have a line that would go out to wherever the console was. So it would switch back and forth, and you just flip a little thing and go back and forth. People of a certain age, like us, might actually know that this thing exists. A lot of the younger listeners will probably have no clue of what's going on. Really, it's not that important. Just sort of think of it as in your car. There might actually be an RF transmitter there that you have that can pick up to your car so that you could play something from your phone or audio device if you have an older car without a tape deck or something. It's the same kind of concept. It just creates this really strong localized signal that's low enough that it can't go outside of, say, Bluetooth range, but 
still strong enough that it's going to kick out anything else that is trying to get in. Exactly. But of course, these airways are regulated by the FCC, which is why in the geographic region you lived in, there was only one channel that came in on your channel three, only one network, only one network came in on your channel four, because the RCC parceled out these bands, these frequency bands, and only allowed this specific group or that specific group to use each of those bands. It's okay to have a device that locally overrides that for just you, for just your television. But it's important that that signal is not being broadcast more broadly so that it affects someone else's television in the next room or your neighbor's television in the next house down or everybody on your city block. This signal has to be essentially shielded because this RF signal, it just, it radiates. You know, it's not a focused beam or anything. It is radiation. So you have to essentially shield that signal so that it only goes along the path that you want it to go. It's only going along your wires, and it's only going along those wires to your television, and no one else is picking it up and interfering with stuff. Effectively, you need a Faraday cage around the electronics before it exits. Right. The FCC was very concerned that these video game devices not interfere with other devices. And when I say very concerned, I mean that there was a law that said that they could not do that. And the FCC could determine that if you did violate that law, then your product could not be sold. So when I say they take it very seriously, they take it very seriously. They take it into the FCC for testing and it fails. The FCC says you can't release it. There's even a minor kerfluffle. They avoid any serious sanction here, but there's even a minor kerfluffle because they had already started advertising the Telstar before they got FCC approval. And you're not allowed to advertise a device like that until the FCC has approved it because before the FCC has approved it, it may not come out. And so you're essentially promising something you can't promise is going to exist and it's false advertising. And they got away from any sanction for doing that, even though that was kind of a no-no to do the advertising. They did have to resubmit, fix it and resubmit. The FCC was nice. They said, we'll give you to the end of the week to resubmit. But if it fails again, then you're going to have to go to the back of the line. You have to remember, this is after Home Pong had taken off in 1975. There's now a video game craze. You have dozens of companies getting involved now in this new home video game industry. All of them need to get their systems through the FCC approval process. So the FCC, the line is backing up to get FCC approval. Coleco was relatively early on this trend, so they got a good slot that was good for their June release. If they have to go to the back of the line, they're going to completely blow their launch window. It's going to be a disaster. Even their holiday sales might be in jeopardy at that point. So this is bad. You see, a lot of companies were having trouble with the FCC, the same problems the Coleco were having, because these were all toy companies or import-export emporiums. They were not electronics companies. They didn't have staff. You know, Coleco didn't have electronics staff. They're going to very quickly get a few, which we'll talk about mostly in the next episode. But they don't have electronics staff. They don't have a lab with all the testing equipment they need and all the shielding equipment they need. That's why a lot of these companies are failing, and that's why Coleco fails, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is a problem. But as I mentioned before, they have this relationship with Ralph Baer. Even though Ralph Baer is not the one, as it turns out, that introduced them to General Instrument, the relationship they had with Baer was real. They really did know him. Coleco calls up Ralph Baer and is like, we've got this problem. 
We've submitted. We failed. We need to figure this out. Well, Bayer works at a large defense contractor, Sanders Associates. So they have all the testing equipment and lab space that you could possibly want. Now, there is one little hiccup here, though, because, of course, we've talked about all the patent lawsuits and how everyone had to take a license from Magnavox for this technology that Sanders had patented, or licensed the patents, I should say, to Magnavox. Well, Coleco, just like everybody else, just like Atari, just like Mattel, just like later on Activision and Nintendo and everybody, just like everybody else, Coleco had no interest in paying a licensing fee. They didn't see why they had to do something like that. They had not signed the licensing agreement with Magnavox. So Bear was like, yeah, I'll fix your problem for you, but you know, there's this licensing agreement and I don't think you've signed it yet. So you sign the licensing agreement, and I'll fix your system for you. So they did. They signed the licensing agreement, which had the upside that they never actually got sued by Magnavox because they were licensed from the beginning. And then Bear took the system back to his lab, figured out where the leaks were, where the radiation leaks were, and got that thing shielded appropriately. They went back in. They passed their test. And they got to release on time. And not only did they get to release on time, but it wasn't only the FCC that was being backed up because all of these companies were getting involved. General Instrument was getting backed up as well. So many companies requested that GI Pong on a chip that they did not have enough to meet the full market demand. Coleco, because they had come to them when that chip wasn't even finished yet, when it was still being worked on, they were the first company to order from General Instrument. So they got their full order. Most companies that ordered from GI did not, but Coleco did. So they were able to sell their full lot, 975,000 Coleco Telstar systems in 1976. Which gives them a major leg up on the competition. This immediately rockets them to the top of the industry. They're neck and neck with Atari. Atari claimed about a million systems sold as well. It's possible Atari sold slightly more than them. Regardless, Coleco is either number one or number two now in this business, either right ahead of or right behind Atari, and they're neck and neck. They have a highly successful 1976, and they are now in the video game business. 1977 for them is all about riffing on this Telstar. We talked about this before because we talked about dedicated consoles, but you know, dedicated consoles can't play many games. They're pretty limited. How do you keep people coming back year after year after year when there's only so much you can do with Pong? The answer is you try to sell a full line of systems that are at slightly different price points and have slightly different configurations of games in the hopes that people will come back the next year to buy your slightly improved model. Of course, this doesn't work out, and we've already talked about how this whole thing had fallen apart by the end of 1977, beginning in 1978, because there's only so much you can do with these systems. That was the strategy. And as much as you were trying to make money in this business, that's how you would do it. In 1977, they release a new line of Telstar systems. They keep that Telstar name because... Telstar did well, so now it's a brand. (laughs) Coleco Telstar is quite literally the leading brand just about in video games. So in 1977, they mix and match. Because you remember the original Telstar, it only had three ball and paddle games, even though the chip was capable of four ball and paddle games and two target shooting games. 
1977, their main system was the Telstar Alpha. The Telstar Alpha added the squash, racquetball, handball, whatever you want to call it, two paddles on one side of the screen, wall on the other side of the screen, alternating, bouncing the ball off the wall for points. They added the squash game, which they called Hyalai. Hyalai was a very short-lived, faddish game. You can look it up on your own time, but they called it Hyalai. Not Hyalide. Yeah, oh yeah, if you do want to look it up, it's an Indian name, so... If you do want to look it up, you you would need to know how it's spelled. It's J-A-I hyphen A-L-A-I, but it's pronounced Hyalai. So they added the squash game as Hyalai, released it as the Telstar Alpha, and released it for 40 bucks. Already, just a year later, because of the way the technology is shifting and because of the high-volume nature of the orders, even though this system has one more game implemented than the system they released the year before, it's much cheaper. They're trying to entice people to buy this new thing because it has more functionality to cheaper price. All of these systems, these first two systems, the Telstar and the Alpha, they're both black and white systems. GI does release a separate chip that can be combined with the AY38500 to produce color graphics. So then they also release a system called the Telstar Colormatic. This is the exact same system as the Alpha, except it has color graphics and is therefore $10 more expensive. It's $50 instead of $40. Then they release a high-end model, the Telstar Ranger, which includes also the two target shooting games. So it has detachable paddle controllers and a detachable gun controller. You can plug the gun controller in and play the target shooting games. So now they have a lineup. Here's the same thing we offered last year, except with one more game and cheaper. Here's that same system with color, and then here's that same system with also the target shooting games, and it retailed for $60. So you had three different price points, three different configurations, all based on the same chip. Then they also, because GI had an updated ball and paddle chip that they released for the 1977 season that played even more ball and paddle games, so then Coleco also released the Telstar Galaxy, which used the new chip, could play eight games, and was also in color. It was also $60. Four systems, three price points, all basically ball and paddle systems, but with a little variation. Wait, there's more. They really go crazy on this. I mean, Telstar was so big in 1976 that they decide we are just going to make all the video games, all of them. They also make a couple of other systems for 1977. They create a tank system as in a variation on the Atari coin-op game, Tank, that they call Telstar Combat. It uses another general instrument chip, because we talked about this in a previous episode. GI released a series of LSIs that each played specific arcade hits for 1977. So they had their ball and paddle chip still, but they also had their breakout chip, essentially, and their tank chip, and their driving game chip, so on and so forth. They used the AY38700, which was the chip that basically played Atari's tank. They created the Telstar Combat, which had joystick controls like the arcade game where you had two controls that you used to control your tank, two levers. You know, you push them both forward, you go forward, you push them both back, you go in reverse, you alternate them, and you turn either left or right, depending on which one's forward, which one's back, just like operating a tracked vehicle in the real world. So now they have Combat, Telstar Combat as well. Then they even release a 
multi-game system called the Telstar Arcade. This one's really bizarre, and we'll put it in the show notes. Occasionally, someone will mistakenly call this a programmable system because it's cartridge-based. It's not actually programmable. It's a triangular console. It's real funky looking. We'll put something in the show notes. It's triangular because it has three sets of controls. It has ball and paddle game controls on one face. It has a gun for target shooting on a second face, and it has a steering wheel for driving games on the third face. In the middle of this triangular array is an empty spot to put in a cartridge. There is no microprocessor in this unit. There is also no microprocessor on the cartridges. What they did is one of GI's competitors, Moss Technology, which will, of course, become much more famous for the 6502 chip that powers everything from the Atari VCS to the Nintendo Entertainment System to the Commodore 64, they released a set of game-playing chips to get in on the GI action. What they did is they released a chip called the MPS 7600 that had support circuitry you could put different support circuitry with it to play different games. So it's one chip. The chip is capable of many more game variations depending on what other circuitry you put with it. I hope I'm making some kind of sense here. You are. And what sort of brought that mind there is actually the original Magnavox Odyssey. Yes. You have a system that is hard circuit stuff. And we only have certain capabilities that we can turn on and off and maybe have a different thing. And then we put these cards in that have additional Mm -hmm. circuitry in it that dictate what sections get turned on and off and how certain things behave. It seems to be an evolution of the Magnavox Odyssey where it's just a more advanced version of that. Right. It it really is. Because now, of course, the Odyssey was all discrete components and this is a microchip and LSI at the heart. But yes, it's, it's exactly a similar idea. But it's not a microprocessor. We've got to be very clear on that. The MPS 7600 is still just a large-scale integration integrated circuit. It is not a microprocessor. Because there were four variations of this chip, what Coleco did is they created four cartridges and then created a base unit that could accept that cartridge so it could play all of these different types of games. But without a microprocessor, without programmability. One cartridge was packaged with the system. It had one driving game, Road Race, one target shooting game, Quick Draw, and one ball and paddle game, Tennis. One game that took advantage of each of these three control schemes on this triangular console. Then they released three additional cartridges that had additional games on them. Each one of the additional cartridges had three or four additional games on them. They didn't all use one face of the system. For instance, the second cartridge was almost all ball and paddle games with just one target shooting game. There was no driving game on it. They just made sure that the cartridge that came with the system took advantage of of every controller scheme. So there were a total of four cartridges that between them had a total of 3, 6, 9, 12, 14 games, all based around this one chip, not programmable. So that was their truly upscale system, the Telstar Arcade. So that's a lot of systems. They released a ton of stuff in 1977. They did okay in 1977. They were the clear market leader in 77. In 76, they were neck and neck with Atari. In 77, Atari, of course, is moving towards their VCS system. They're hyping that. Even though 
Atari is still in the dedicated console market in 77. They're shifting focus to programmables. Coleco is staying in the dedicated system business, and they are the undisputed king of that dedicated system business. They sell about 2 million systems, a little under, probably about 1.75, somewhere between 1.75 and 2 million systems, almost double the volume that they did in 1976 of all of these systems combined. That represented about a third of the entire dedicated console market. They were far and away the leader in the business. However, they had some real problems. It turns out that in 1977, there was a big dock worker strike on the East Coast, right around the time that stuff was shipping for the holiday season. Because, of course, if you're going to have a strike, you're going to have it at a period of time when it's going to hurt people the most, because then they'll have a real incentive to end the strike. The stock worker strike happened just as they're shipping their Christmas inventory. They are not able to ship everything because it's on the docks. Nobody's loading it. The market is okay in 77. It's still a solid market in 77. But as we talked about in other episodes, the dedicated console market was below estimate. So people are already buying fewer of these things. And then Coleco is not able to get everything to market that they have. They're forced to sell it after the Christmas season. Well, these are seasonal products. You're not actually going to sell it after the Christmas season. Not really. Not in this time frame anyway. Not without basically liquidating. In 77, because of the inventory backup, even though they sell all these systems, they only make a profit of about $1.7 million, despite all of this stuff that they sell because they invested more inventory than they sold. Then in 1978, they're forced to liquidate. They did come up with a couple of, with a new line of systems for 1978 because they thought, you know, things were going to continue to be great. So they do release a couple of more systems in 1978. The Telstar Marksman, which is basically just the Telstar Ranger with a rifle instead of a pistol. So, you know, it's a very small change to an existing system. Then they did the Telstar Colortron, which was the same as the previous year's Alpha, which is basically the same as the Telstar Alpha, which was their ball and paddle system from the year before, except it had color graphics and slightly better sound. They did slight upgrades to their 77 line for 78. They were also planning in 78 to do a more advanced version of the Telstar Arcade called the Telstar Game Computer. Now, despite the name, despite computer being in the name, this was not going to be a programmable system either. Just like the Telstar Arcade, it was going to be cartridges with their own LSIs. But I think it was probably, I'm not sure because it didn't come out, I think it was probably going to use some of the GI chips to offer like a tank game and a submarine game and a racing game. It was all going to be dedicated chips. It was not going to be programmable. So they were looking at incremental upgrades for 78. Because they had to liquidate inventory that didn't sell in 77 because of a combination of the dock worker strike and the uh, just the market being a little soft, they end up taking a $22.3 million loss for the 1978 fiscal year. They end up being investigated by the SEC and by their shareholders who are wondering what the heck happened here and why did you have this big disaster. 
They cancel the uh, Telstar game computer outright. They do release the Colortron and the Marksman, though, you know, they don't sell very many units. And they get the heck out of video games. That's it. They're done. They take a bath. They're done. Now, one might think that that would be the end of the Coleco story in video games. But, in fact, it's really only the beginning. Now that we have taken this time to set up what Coleco was, who the players were, what they were involved in, and how they entered and very briefly dominated the video game business before falling apart, we are going to break it there because that's the perfect cutoff point in the Coleco story. In part two, we are going to look at how they rebound by getting into this fancy new electronic handheld thing that Mattel has pioneered, then come back in full force with ColecoVision, look like they're going to reach that pinnacle again that they reached with the original Telstar, only to have the entire thing fall apart thanks to the video game crash. But that is a whole big story all on its own and deserves its own episode. So that's what we'll do next time on They Create Worlds. We'll see you in the next episode. Have a good one. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under the Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. 